Good evening. This is Milton Rosenberg. Welcome again to Extension 720. Is there anybody in all the world who doesn't know, and for that matter, love, the Sherlock Holmes stories? I have never met anybody of whom that might be said. And surely our guest tonight is uh, a great Holmesian, not merely as a fan, but very much as a biographer and editor. Uh, That guest uh, is John Lellenberg, uh, whose most recent book is titled Dangerous Work, Diary of an Arctic Adventure. That's the adventure that Arthur Conan Doyle, as a young medical student uh, just turning 21, had in a trip to the Arctic on a whaler. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about a great deal else. And we'll also uh, dip deep into the lore, the legend, and the ultimate historical truth about Sherlock Holmes, including um, his response to the great question, one of the questions that still rings down the corridors of literary memory. They were the footprints of a gigantic hound. What hound was that? How did that happen? We will discover all of that in conversation uh, with John Lelliveld, uh, Lellenberg. Lelliveld is another fellow I know. First, the update on this evening's news. Extension 720 with Milt Rosenberg from the Allstate Studios in Chicago on 720 WGN. My guest tonight has a double identity. Uh, He is John Lellenberg, uh, retired from the Defense Department, where he worked for many years at a very high level in strategic studies and related matters. Uh, And um, also my guest tonight is Roger Prescott of Evil Memory, and they are one and the same man. Explain yourself, sir. Well, the Roger Prescott of Evil Memory comes from the Baker Street Irregulars, which is the Sherlock Holmes Literary Club that was founded in 1934 in New York by the writer Christopher Morley and some of his friends. And at a certain point in its history, uh, the numbers had grown so many that to denote membership in it, they started giving out uh, what were called canonical investitures, beginning with the titles of the 60 Sherlock Holmes stories. The very first one went to someone here in Chicago, the great uh, Chicago Tribune bookman, Vincent Sterrett. On this newspaper. On this newspaper, in those days. that's right. Yeah. And uh, and it has gone on from there. And by uh, they were running out of the really glamorous ones by the time they came to me, and that's why I get to be somebody of evil memory. The way the irregulars operate in their meetings, and I've met them, I've had them on this program a few times, is you go always with the premise that there was a real Sherlock Holmes, and Doyle is a moderately insignificant character who may have been a friend of Dr. Watson's and sort of represented him for publicity purposes for a while. He's usually described as Dr. Watson's literary agent. Literary agent. When we, dis- when we mention him at all. Just as you are now, in fact, in life, uh, uh, Dr. Doyle's literary agent in the United States. Well, his estate. Uh, agent for, right. for the yes. estate. He is no longer with us. No. His actual years, he was born in 1859, is that right? That's right. And lives till 1930. So it's 60, 30. He lives about 70 years. That's right. And he's a very prodigious writer. He did much more than just Sherlock Holmes. Oh, yes, that's, that's quite right. Uh, what he felt were his most important work uh, were a set of historical novels about the English Middle Ages. He wrote quite a few other uh, historical novels, uh, particularly wrote novels and short stories about the Napoleonic Wars. But he also wrote very... Uh, straightforward novels of Victorian life, um, wrote about, uh, wrote some er- very early science fiction, particularly 
uh, the novel The Lost World about Professor Schallinger mm-hmm. discovering a part of the world that time had left behind. And with all that writing, he's also fully engaged as a physician for the first eight or ten years of his career. For yes, for about for about ten years, uh, when once the Sherlock Holmes stories, the short stories caught fire, he was saw that he, number one, he was uh, he need not practice medicine anymore to make a living, and yeah. number two, he probably wouldn't have the time to do both, so he gave up medicine. There is a world of Holmesian fanciers and fans, even so much so that many of them join outfits like the Baker Street Irregulars to pretend for the rest of their lives that they're doing research on the real but still unwritten adventures of Sherlock Holmes. What accounts for this? Cult would be the wrong word because that would mean a small group. This is a vast panorama of people from all walks of life in all countries. It's by no means just in the English-speaking language. What is the secret of the attraction to Holmes? It's a very interesting question because he appeals to people across geography, across cultures and languages. Exactly. Um, I suppose the most important thing, well, I think there are two truly important things. One is that Sherlock Holmes is a symbol of justice, of right against wrong, of someone who can solve the, the mysteries that are afflicting people and set things in order. And we'll, but the, but and that dynamic works for essentially all mystery stories. It does. Uh, for all established uh, uh, famous uh, fictional detectives. This is true, but Holmes does it with a flare of brilliance. A special that, panache, actually. That's right, that are not found in many others. I think the other thing that makes the stories tremendously popular is the sense of an admirable friendship between him and and Dr. Watson, yeah. his companion and his his uh, biographer. And most of the great <clears throat> lasting fictional detectives have great buddies. There uh, usually is a second. I think there usually is. Um, Dr. Watson is a particularly interesting character because he's a doc- he is a physician, as Doyle was. He had been in the British Army as a surgeon and mm-hmm. had been in combat. Been Wounded in Afghanistan. That's correct, at the battle, fatal Battle of Maiwand. Yeah. And um, he was both a man's man and a lady's man. And one of the, in fact, one of the, uh, the perennial jokes in the Baker Street Irregulars is to try to decide how many wives Dr. Watson actually had in the course of his life. The numbers vary from certainly at least one to perhaps as many as five for the more extravagant-minded of my friends. Is that because the name of his wife changes? Well, you never hear the the names of any others except the the one of which there is a story, and that is uh, Mary Morstan, the heroine of the novel The Sign of Four. Um, but one of the things that we like to do is to take the stories and work out, you know, the the, the internal inconsistencies and the contradictions, the problems of chronolo- chronology, and what they say. And people come up with evidence for easily two more wives, and some would argue for a fourth or fifth. And the irregulars are doing that sort of research all the time. Indeed. And presenting papers in which they're presenting papers as if this is really serious literary research and based upon factual investigation. That's right. Um, the it's found- a wonderful premise. It's great fun. Well, the founder, Christopher Morley, once commented, and this was many years ago, this was, yeah. I think 1946, when he looked at what was filling up the new Baker Street Journal. He said, uh, 
never has so much been written by so many for so few. Yeah. Interestingly, along those lines, never have, has one particular character been written in novelistic or short story form by so many. After Doyle's death and after uh, one would have expected that the, um, the Sherlockian canon is completed, there are probably hundreds of people who have gone on to write additional Sherlock Holmes stories and novels. The temptation to do so is is almost universal. And to put as him well. in, to put him in on television with made up news stories and some major films. Right. We're going to sample some of the radio performances uh, of uh, well known actors doing Sherlock and Watson. We're also uh, going to sample at least one of the current films with. What's his name? The Robert Downey Jr. Robert Downey Jr. as Sherlock Watson. Exactly. But before we do any or all of that, and before we get to this very interesting book that um, John Lellenberg has edited and annotated, namely Dangerous Work, Diary of an Arctic Adventure. That's a diary written by Arthur Conan Doyle when, as a young man uh, of around 21, he went on a whaler up to the Arctic. Uh, We continue with all of that right after we pause for this. Extension 720 with Milt Rosenberg on 720 WGN. I had forgotten, but uh, you, uh, John Lellenberg, conveniently reminded me before we came on the air that the very first Sherlock Holmes story was a full novel. That's, that's correct. Study in Scarlet. Study in Scarlet. Uh, and uh, the famous novel, The Hound of the Baskervilles, is his third novel. That's right. In between, he had done a number of short stories as well. That's correct. And a second novel. But I think the single one of the novels that is still best known and most widely read, and which has been done a number of times as a movie, is The Hound of the Baskervilles. Here we have uh, it as the, we're going to play some scenes and, uh, with Nigel, uh, uh, Nigel Bruce as Dr. Watson, and, of course, Basil Rathbone as Sherlock Holmes, the classic-looking Sherlock Holmes. Though I think he was based upon the way he looked and the way he dressed and so on was based upon Gillette's performances on the American stage. Isn't that right? Both that and uh, perhaps even more Sidney Paget's illustrations for the original stories Ah. in England. We see the deerstalker hat and and the lean figure and so on. The lean figure, the aquiline nose, (laughs) and the height. Uh, here's a scene. Uh, this is not the very first scene in the film and is not the very first scene in the story. But, um, in fact, in the first scene in the novel, we have Watson coming up to uh, Holmes's digs. I don't think that they're yet sharing an apartment, are they? Well, they are, but um, Watson, Watson finds Holmes in the sitting room yeah. at Baker Street examining a walking stick that had been left behind by someone who had come to see Holmes but had departed before Holmes returned. And the question becomes, Watson, what can you tell me about our visitor from his walking stick? And here is uh, the ensuing dialogue. This would be number two on our list. Well, if you've had enough to eat, Watson, and you're feeling a better spirits, I think we'd better be getting along. Getting along well, if I'm not praying. I'm returning with you to Baskerville Hall. There's still some gaps to be filled in, but all in all, things are becoming a little clearer. Not to me, I assure you. Still a hopeless jumble. Mr. Franklin, Dr. Mortimer, the Barrowmans. Put it all together, and what have you got? Murder, my dear Watson. Refined, cold-blooded murder. Murder? There's no doubt about it in my mind. Or perhaps I should say in my imagination. For that's where crimes are conceived and where they're solved. In the imagination. 
But there's been no murder. Unless you mean Sir Charles. And the facts clearly indicated that he died from heart failure. That's why so many murders remain unsolved, Watson. People will stick to facts, even though they prove nothing. Now, if we go beyond facts, use our imagination as the criminal does. Imagine what might have happened and act upon it, as I've been trying to do in this case, we usually find ourselves justified. Then you know? Another day, two at the most, and I will know. My one fear is that the murderer will strike before we're ready. In that case... What's that? Where's it coming from? There. No, no, no. There. Downed. Come on, Watson, quick. And, uh, as I said, when we opened the program, someplace before that, uh, Dr. Mortimer, who's on the scene, uh, speaks of some footprints outside the manor house. and He's describing the death of Sir Charles Baskerville, right. the previous owner of the estate. And Holmes has not put much stock into this, the legend that Dr. Mortimer has told him about the Hound of the Baskervilles from the 1600s. But he... When he tells Holmes about Sir Charles' body being found in the U Alley outside the house, he mentions footprints. Holmes says, a man's or a woman's. And, and he, says, he responds. Mr. Holmes, they were the footprints of a gigantic hound. Of a gigantic hound. Uh, let us now hear the end, towards the end of the film. This is great stuff. Um, this was a very, very popular novel immediately, wasn't it? It was uh, an incredible bestseller in yeah. every spe English-speaking country <laughs> in the world and in other countries as fast what as it What year was it that it was first published? It, it started running serially in 1901, and it came out as a book in 1902. Uh -huh. And here again from the film, with Basil Rathbone, for me, and I've seen many, Hol many Holmeses, he is the perfect Sherlock. Here he is. Uh, together with, of course, uh, Nigel Bruce as Dr. Watson. I owe Number you an apology, Sir Henry, for jeopardizing your life. Jeopardizing? But you saved my life. But there was no possible way for me to foretell the fog. And I must apologize, too, for deceiving you last night. When I told you that your troubles were over, I knew that they weren't. But if I hadn't cleared out, the crisis which came tonight would have been indefinitely postponed with the shadow of death hanging over you. And over you, too, Miss Stapleton. You knew this was going to happen? How could you know? The person who wanted to snuff out your life, Sir Henry, was the same one who plotted to kill your uncle. He wanted to get you both out of the way so that he could lay claim to this place, to the whole Baskerville estate. In tracing back his lineage, he discovered not only that he was the next of kin, but also learned of that old legend about the hound. So he brought the hound to life by the simple expedient of buying the most savage dog that he could find and hiding it here on the moor until he needed it. If he had succeeded tonight, the blame would have fallen on the legendary monster, and no possible suspicion would have been attached to him. A most ingenious device. And I'm quite sure that he would have had no difficulty in proving his claim to Baskerville Hall and all that goes with it. The most amazing instance of a throwback that I've ever seen. And you can see for yourself. Stapleton! One move and I'll shoot! Jack! Don't you stay where you are. You're under arrest, Stapleton. For the murder of Sir Charles Baskerville, the murder of a convict, and the attempted murder of Sir Henry. You can't arrest me, Holmes. I one move from any of you and I'll blast you all at kingdom come. 
It doesn't quite happen that way, does it? He doesn't blast them to kingdom come. He does not, no. He uh, he <laughs> flees out into onto Dartmoor and is lost in the quicksands that are, that are, are throughout the, just the ground. just yeah, That's right. <clears throat> but I learned from you, because I hadn't remembered all the detail on this, that in fact the film changes the identity of the murderer. Well, Miss Stapleton, as she's called in the movie, with uh, with a romantic interest in the young and handsome Sir Henry Baskerville, is presented as Stapleton's sister. And the novel is actually his wife, who has been compelled by Stapleton to play a supporting role in this drama that he's created in order to murder Sir, Hen- Sir Charles Baskerville and Sir Henry as well. So what happens to her, the wife, in the novel? In the novel, I think there is... Uh, Understanding and clemency, given the situation she was uh-huh. in. It's very kind, very Victorian, in fact. Well, it is. I'm not sure it was terribly legal, under even with the Victorian not. law. But uh, but Conan Doyle yeah. was was happy to uh, fudge the fudge the facts in, in such cases. As we were talking a while ago about <clears throat> why Holmes is so attractive a figure and has remained so for so long, why so many have imitated Doyle and written their own Holmes stories and novels, <clears throat> it occurs to me there is something else. There, the fact that he is a thinking machine, yes. that he's r- ratiocinative perfection. And, we got, and he's a strange character. As Doyle continues to represent him, though he, can, um, he knows every possible mode of cigarette ash among six or seven hundred around the world, and similar things, he doesn't know that uh, basic astronomy because he says it doesn't have any interest, have any use in his work. That's right. The fact that the Earth goes around the sun doesn't interest him, and he's not, uh, he, he's sort of dodgy and unclear about the whole thing. Um, but he reasons on everything. And of course, we've got that great maxim which he repeats, which Sherlock repeats more than once. Uh, you want to give it? Once you have excluded the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. Exactly. That shows up four or five times at least, doesn't at it? At least. Uh, and that shows him to be the ultimate logical analytic machine. Conan Doyle saw him as um, basically as a scientific instrument designed for a single purpose. Right. And he came to think of him and thought he was presenting him, although there's that's debatable, mm-hmm. as a very cold, reasoning, calculating machine. On the other hand, he had based the Sherlock Holmes method upon a medical professor of his in Edinburgh, Dr. Joseph Bell. And you, who, had a, you had a, a, co- a colleague <clears throat> in the Irregulars, and I met him once or twice. He was on this program, who did a, bo- a book about Joseph Bell as, in a way, the, uh, the model for Sherlock Holmes's mode of thinking. Yes, uh, the late Eli Lebo of Northeastern Illinois yeah. University. He was a very, very close, dear friend of mine and of Many of us. And you remember the title of that book? It's called Dr. Joe Bell, Model for Sherlock Holmes. There we are. And I, it's, it's still in print today. And he, he, he makes it very clear that Joseph Bell was very much a, a flesh-and-blood person, not a cold, calculating machine himself. And why? And certainly Conan Doyle gave the credit for the Sherlock Holmes method <coughs> to <coughs> Professor Bell. But he still liked to see Holmes as very cold and calculating and that the humanity in the stories came from Watson. Um, I don't think it's quite as black and white as that, but uh, certainly he's created a contrast between the two characters that works enormously well and has for over well over 100 years now. Let's quickly look at the overall extent 
and content of the oeuvre, of the whole oeuvre. That's a fancy literary word for the works. Uh, and uh, so there are how many novels? Five or six? There's four novels. Four novels. They are? The a Study in Scarlet. First. The Sign of Four. The Hound of the Baskervilles and The Valley Affair. And there are supposedly some 60 canonical Sherlock Holmes stories. Well, there's 56 short stories, and they and the four novels make up the 60 of what Ah, we call the canon. So 56 stories only. Yeah. You could recite, you could give me the titles of all if I challenge you. I'm not challenging you on that. But remind our listeners, what are some of the five or ten best known? Well, I think certainly uh, The Speckled Band. Yeah. um, The Red-Headed League. Uh, the two about Professor Moriarty, uh, which are the the uh, final problem and the empty house. Is Moriarty in only two of the stories? He's no, he's referred to in some of the others, including the novel The Valley of Fear. Yeah. But he first appears in the final problem, uh, which ends with a confrontation between the two men in Switzerland and the apparent death of both. As they're right. Tussling and wrestling with each other, and they go over the Reichenbach Falls together right. Con- to their mutual doom. Donut Conan Doyle was uh, wanting to kill <laughs> off Sherlock Holmes so he could spend more time writing other things. Yeah. He had seen the Reichenbach Falls on a trip to to, to uh, Switzerland, thought that was a fine place to do it. Now, but it is interesting that he did not leave a corpse behind. Yeah. So there was an opening there, conscious or, or subconscious, to bring Sherlock Holmes back Now, that back story to life. was number what in the sequence? Of uh, the short stories, that was probably number 24. Only 24. It was the second of the but, second, uh, but, last of the second But the collection. public clamored uh, in, in pain and desire, saying we must have more Holmes. It was not a very popular thing, killing off Sherlock yeah. Holmes. Uh, he... Uh, he heard a lot about it from many people, including the uh, the young lady who he said wrote him a letter that began with the words, you brute. <laughs> um, and he said to him, the only real pain was to the pocketbook. Yeah. But in time, he found he couldn't do without Sherlock Holmes himself. And, and so we had back. to bring him back. How in the world does he bring back a dead man who went over Reichenbach Falls with the greatest criminal mind of of uh, England, That's or right. of the world, for all we know. Dr. Moriarty, that will be disclosed to those few who don't know the answer when we return after an update on this evening's news. For that, to the WGN Newsroom and Paula Cooper. Extension 720 with Milt Rosenberg on 720 WGN. And uh, we continue with John Lellenberg, whose newest book, who's the co-author with you? Daniel Stashauer, who uh, is a friend of mine in Washington, D.C., where I used to live. And the two of them, uh, Lellenberg and Stashauer, have done um, a book titled Dangerous Work, in quotes, uh, Diary of an Arctic Adventure. Uh, And the diary itself, as kept by Arthur Conan Doyle, age 21, uh, is reproduced in this book together with uh, editing, annotation, and a good deal else done by the two modern authors. It's also a very handsomely produced book Beautiful. with some wonderful illustrations in the book done by, of all people, Arthur Conan Doyle. Arthur Conan Doyle. He came from a family of artists. Uh, I don't think he bragged about his own ability, but he certainly did well with, I think, uh, 70 black and white pen and ink sketches in the diary, and he went back and with watercolors on some of them as well. He's an all-around artist. Yeah, he 
uh, well, he certainly had a lot of lot of artistic abilities for somebody who's in medical yeah. school intending to be a, a, a physician. Now, we were talking about uh, the death of uh, Sherlock Holmes at Reichenbach Falls in a final confrontation with the evil Dr. Moriarty. They both go over the falls together. Uh, here is a scene from a radio representation of uh, that particular story, The Final Problem being the title. And... Uh, and Holmes is played by Sir John Gielgud. Yes. Wonderful, great English actor. It's a wonderful cast in that series. And, and Ralph Richardson As is Dr. Watson, not in this scene, but in another. Uh, and Moriarty is played by, of all people, Orson Welles. Yes. Let's listen to them in their final conversation before they go over the falls together. Is that you, Watson? Back already? Well, Moriarty. Well, Sherlock Holmes, you see, I found you after all, and alone. Alone, as indeed you must be too. Now that your confederates are all under lock and key, I've mm -hmm. heard from Scotland Yard. I escaped. I was too clever for them, Holmes. I don't doubt it. But I'm afraid your occupation's gone, Professor, with your organization destroyed, unless you care to return to your mathematics. It was not my intention. I have another and more immediate intention, Sherlock Holmes. Are you prepared? Well, before we discuss that, perhaps you extend me one small courtesy, Professor. Most certainly. What is it? My friend Watson, Professor. No doubt he will be somewhat concerned. Uh, may I just take a moment to scribble a note to him? Certainly. We can fix the paper beneath my alpenstock there. As it does not blow away. Pray take as long as you wish. That's very good of you. Please don't stop talking, Professor. I mastered long ago the art of writing and conversing at the same time. Thank you. You know, of course, that the message which arrived for Dr. Watson was a false one. Oh, yes, of course. I knew it at once. And that it could only come from one source. And yet you let him go? Yes, Professor, I let him go. I am not without some affection for him. I did not wish to put his life in danger, too. Besides, Besides, I've looked forward for a long time to this final duel between us. I believe it, Holmes. You're a very remarkable man. In many ways. Many, many ways, sir. I'm proud to have known you. Oh, and I, you, Professor. There, my letter's done, then. Perhaps you'll be kind enough to place it, as you suggested. Right. Now... How shall it be, Moriarty? I did not bring a pistol, Holmes. Thank you. Your courtesy puts me to shame, Professor. There is my pistol. It goes into the falls. Hand to hand? Yes. Goodbye, Professor Moriarty. Goodbye, Sherlock Holmes. Beautifully written and wonderfully acted. I think it was quite wonderful of the uh, production, which was a British one, to use Orson Welles yeah. as Moriarty. He had done Sherlock Holmes before, and uh, the Mercury Theater of the Air uh, had done a, a mm -hmm. radio adaptation of William Gillette's great 1899 yeah. melodrama, and he loved the characters. But then we heard before all the world protested at the death of Sherlock Holmes, and he relented. And how did he... Bring Holmes back from the dead. 
Well, he had quite a contrived uh, tale for Dr. Watson when he reappeared in London in the uh, story, The Empty House, uh, of having been able to defeat Moriarty on the the edge of this precipice over the Reichenbach Falls uh, with the knowledge of uh, the uh, Japanese uh, martial art uh, called Buritsu, which was actually a, a real thing. And that uh, he realized soon after Moriarty had disappeared into the into the into the abyss, that in fact his chief confederate was still present, and aware that Holmes was alive. Would that be Colonel Sebastian Moran? It would be indeed the second most dangerous man in London. And uh, Holmes uh, departed <coughs> and w- known only to have survived to his brother Mycroft Holmes in London. Uh, he undertook uh, several years of journeying around exotic parts of the world. Uh, he goes to Tibet, doesn't To he? Tibet, yeah. uh, to Saudi Arabia, uh, to, to uh, Persia as well. And only comes back to, to England three years later when uh, he judges the time is right to close the net on Colonel Does that Moran. coincide with a three-year interregnum during which there were no new home stories? There were no new home stories for longer than three years. Yeah. Yes, it was a very hungry audience by, by 1901 when The Hound of the Baskervilles started appearing uh-huh. in print. But that one is given in recall by Dr. Watson. It doesn't yet bring Holmes back to life. That's correct. The uh, story in which Holmes is brought back to life, the uh, the empty house, uh, came two years later in 1903. And what's his cover story? His cover story? Well, it's the one you've just been giving. As a Norwegian explorer named Seekerson. That's his cover identity. Yes. Yeah. this this tale that Sherlock Holmes told Watson about where he'd been and what he'd been doing is uh, something that <laughs> Sherlockians love to shoot holes in. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what kind of holes can you shoot in? Well, it's it's a pretty tall tale. Um, you have to believe that Doctor Watson is a fairly gullible person to swallow this hole, and the theories that have come up. Uh, that have been ranging from everything from Holmes returning immediately to England and having been there in disguise, working away at one thing or another the entire time, uh, to the idea that he rejoined the woman, Irene Adler, who had once defeated him in the story of Scandal Bohemia, and that they spent the time together and had a child, who in the fullness of time was born in New Jersey and grew up to be Nero Wolfe, the uh, famous detective created by Rex Stout, who was a Baker Street irregular. Of course, there are mixed genealogies for Nero Wolfe. He also, in somebody else's stories, may be even implied by Rex Stout himself, Nero Wolfe was, <clears throat> was it of Montenegrin yes. origin? Yes, and that's that's worked into this this uh, elaborate Sherlockian theory. Oh yes, <laughs> yes, I believe them all. Um, we're about to pause for a quick round of commercials. When we come back, we go to the young, the quite young, Doctor uh, Conan Doyle. He's not yet, in fact, fully credentialed as a physician. He is only in his third year of medical school. When and he goes he's off, only twenty at the beginning. Yeah, of this. and he goes off on a on a whaling trip, heading for the Arctic. Uh, it rather reminds you of the young Darwin on the Beagle. Yes, absolutely. 
uh, the sense of of discovery, the sense of exploration yeah. of unknown areas, and uh, the great adventurousness. So we'll plunge into uh, his uh, record of it all, because this is all in his own words, uh, as you have annotated and edited it uh, in a wonderful new book just recently published by University of Chicago Press. That to follow after this. Extension 720 with Milt Rosenberg on 720 WGN. And uh, we go directly back to John Lellenberg. And now we're going to draw directly from the new book, Dangerous Work, Diary of an Arctic Adventure by Arthur Conan Doyle. And this is an extended diary that he kept while he was on board. Yes, that's right. He um, had the opportunity to serve as the ship surgeon on an Arctic whaler out of the Scottish port of Peterhead. Uh, for about six months at sea, and he was determined to record the entire experience, the entire adventure, and to do everything that he possibly could, from doctoring to to working in the whale boats and so forth, and uh, in both text and images. So you have all of the, the words and all of the uh, the many drawings that he did. He said himself. Uh, at the end of the diary that he had endeavored to record all that he saw and heard, all that he thought that was of interest, and had done so religiously. Let's hear him. Well, one passage I would like to read is the first time the Hope actually got a whale. Uh, he found that he had believed that if you see a whale, you get the whale. He found out it's nowhere near that easy, that the advantage is with the whale. And they had had some, some uh, very great disappointments in this. This was different. And he said, wrote in this, Nothing had been seen all day, and I had gone down to the cabin about 10 o'clock when I heard a sort of bustle on deck. Then I heard the captain's voice from the masthead, lure away the two waste boats. I rushed into the mate's berth and gave the alarm. Colin, the mate, was dressed, but the second mate rushed on deck in his shirt with his trousers in his hand. When I got my head above the hatchway, the very first thing I saw was the whale shooting its head out of the water and gambling about at the other side of a large sconce piece of ice. It was a beautiful night with hardly a ripple on the deep green water. In jumped the crews into their boats, and the officers of the watch looked that their guns were primed and ready. Then they pushed off, and the two long whale boats went crawling away on their wooden legs, one to one side of the bit of ice, the other to the other. Carner, the harpooner, had hardly got up to the ice when the whale came up again, about forty yards in front of the boat, throwing almost its whole body out of the water and making the foam fly. There was a chorus of, Now, Adam, now's your chance, from the line of eager watchers on the vessel's side. But Adam Carner, a grizzled and weather-beaten harpooner, knows better. The whale's small eye is turned towards him, and the boat lies as motionless as the ice behind it. But now it has shifted. Its tail is towards him. Pull, boys, pull! Out shoots the boat from the ice. Will the fish dive before he can get up to it? That is the question in every mind. He is nearing it, and it still lies motionless, nearer yet and nearer. Now he is standing up to his gun and has dropped his oar. Three strokes, boys, he says, as he turns his quid in his cheek, and then there is a bang, 
and a foaming of waters and a shouting, and then up goes the little red flag in Carner's boat, and the whale line runs out merrily. He's 20 years old at mm. the time and a medical student, and it's a passage <coughs> that shows the basic narrative gifts that mm -hmm. he had that he would later turn into real literature with the Sherlock Holmes stories and other books of his. There's a picture of him with his shipmates. <clears throat> He's a tall, handsome young fellow. Yes, he was over six feet, uh, which was certainly uh, yeah. tall for for his he, for his countrymen in that era, and uh, a very athletic person. Uh, played many sports. Uh, took uh, two pairs of boxing gloves with him on the boat in order to uh, to stay fit on, on the ship. And uh, a very mm -hmm. vigorous person. He insisted upon being part of the sealing and the whaling because he wanted to experience everything. But he was not terribly experienced, of course, at maneuvering on the ice. And he fell into the Arctic Ocean so many times that the captain nicknamed him the Great Northern Diver, which is a variety of seabird. Yeah. In this volume that you uh, and your colleague have edited, <clears throat> the, uh, we've got the actual handwritten uh, version of this whole diary. Yes, the whole thing reproduced is reproduced here. Whole thing is, is reproduced beautifully in facsimile. Very handsome, with some wonderful drawings that he did, and then of course you reprint uh, in standard print uh, the full uh, text uh, later on, as well as your comments on it. Let's have another passage or two. Well, during this experience, he uh, he had one personal tragedy, and that was uh, that a. Uh, <clears throat> When an elderly seaman on the boat um, pa became a patient of his uh, with what Conan Doyle, the third-year medical student, diagnosed as a, a form of intestinal blockage called intussusception that was beyond uh, the ability of a medical student on a boat in the Arctic to, to deal with. And um, the man subsequently died, and his entry for April 11th records that uh, uh, that unhappy outcome. Conan Doyle writing, A dark day in the ship's cruise. Poor Andrew was very cheery and very much better in the morning. But he took some plum duff at dinner and was taken worse. I went down at once, and he died within ten minutes, in my arms, literally. Poor old man. They were very kind to him forwards during his illness, and certainly I did my best for him made a list of his effects in the evening, rather a picturesque scene with the corpse and the lanterns and the wild faces around. We bury him tomorrow. And he did a drawing of the burial at sea. Um, in the annotation in the tra of, the trans of the log's transcript, we explain that plum duff was a stiff pudding made of water, flour, molasses, and raisins. And it was a common dessert aboard whalers, but it was... Very heavy ballast, and it was about the last thing a person in, in Andrew Milne's condition should eat. Uh, fortunately, Conan Doyle, for the sake of his medical reputation, fortunately was not present when the fatal dessert was administered. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> There's a poem uh, in there by the young Conan Doyle. He, um, he struggled with poetry constantly. Um, and he did a good deal of verse in this. A lot of it is is fragmentary, is incomplete, or is parodies mm -hmm. of other poems and songs. But he had one remarkable finished poem 
remarkable in that he never printed it anywhere else. So it appears in print for the very first time in this book. And if I may read it, he is speaking of a meerschaum pipe that he brought along on the voyage. It lies within its leather case. It is as it has lain in years gone by. Trusty friends and comrades true are that old meerschaum pipe and I. For it was young when I was young, and many a jovial, reckless night we students drank and smoked and sang, while yet my meerschaum pipe was white. And it was hardly brown before, from home and friends I first did part, but bound for Russia's hostile shore, I bore my meerschaum next my heart. And there upon the blood-stained ground, where many came and few came back, with death and pestilence around, t'was there I smoked my meerschaum black. And when the day our colonel died, we charged and took the Malakoff. A Russian bullet <coughs> grazed my side and shot my meerschaum's amber off. But I am grizzled now and bent. Death sickles near, his crop is ripe. I fear him not, but wait content. I wait and smoke my meerschaum pipe. Sounds like he's <coughs> imagining himself in the Crimean War. Indeed. Which is much earlier, of course. It was in the 1850s, yeah. but it was uh, it was uh, the most recent major war that Britain yeah. had had. And the most much, famous poem out of that war is the charge of the, the Light, Light Brigade. Brigade. And in fact, he parodies that poem as well in, yeah. in his diary. Uh huh. A very interesting fellow. Yes, indeed. From the beginning, He's very versatile. Yeah. One of the things that makes him interesting to students of the Sherlock Holmes stories is. Uh, his own personality and character. You know, many writers are bookworms and they stick to their studies. Mm -hmm. And he was a bookworm himself, uh, but he never stuck to a study. He, from his from his early youth to his later later years, uh, he was an adventurer as well. This was his first great adventure, but it was the first of quite a few. And uh, he various times in his life was a war correspondent, uh, a, f a volunteer field army surgeon in the Boer War in South Africa. And I think he would want me to say that at the, in the last 10 to, or 12 years of his life, uh, his greatest adventure at all, of all was becoming a spokesman for the spiritualist movement. Yes, he's deeply involved in that. He believes in ghosts. He writes about them. I think he even produces some photographs, doesn't he? He was certainly involved in what was at the time was called spirit photography and it yeah. was the attempt to photograph the spirits. He, uh, he was raised a Roman Catholic. He mm -hmm. had broken with it when he was a schoolboy at uh, the probably the most famous Roman Catholic uh, preparatory school in England, Stonyhurst. Um, but but it was more a break with organized religion than with uh, spiritual faith itself. And Did he was he constantly offer... in search of, a, of of real faith. Was he one of those spiritualists who uh, told his friends that he would watch for him, he would return after his death? Uh, I believe he did. He um, certainly tried to communicate members of his family who died, particularly in the First World War, yeah. where he lost his oldest son, his brother, and a number of other family members. I wonder, are there any claimants who uh, announced that they had been contacted by the spirit of Conan Doyle? I think there are, yes. There are various that mediums that have. And, yeah. uh, you know, in, it's a case of you take your money and you, uh, you, you pay your money, you take your chances. 
um, his most famous relationship in his spiritualist movement was with the uh, the great magician Houdini, yeah. who did not believe in it, and in fact uh, had had his own campaign debunking spiritualism and fake mediums. And it was eventually too much for the friendship to bear. I think Houdini promised that if there were an afterlife, he would return to a to that park in South Chicago. Well, very, very possibly. <laughs> Where his friend Clarence Darrow yes. used to bring friends every year on the appointed date, looking for the return, or or else to celebrate the non-return of Harry Houdini. Well, Chicago has a vivid history in many different areas. In this yes, including Conan Doyle's visits yes, to Chicago. Chicago. Much of that and more on the stories and one or two more scenes from the great uh, f- uh, radio programs and films of Sherlock Holmes, all to follow after we pause for a full update on the evening's news. Pour that to the WGN Newsroom and Paula Cooper. This is Extension 720 with Milt Rosenberg on 720 WGN. My guest tonight is John Lellenberg, who's co-editor of Dangerous Work, Diary of an Arctic Adventurer. Do you require yourself to say Arctic? Do you give the, the Middle Sea pronunciation? Always. Absolutely. Yeah? Because I'm not doing that, am I? Well, I my wife beats me if I don't. Yeah. All right, I'll say it again. Dangerous, uh, dangerous Work, Diary of an Arctic Adventurer. Um, and it's wonderful reading, and it's a handsome, handsome book. But this is the fourth or fifth volume about Conan Doyle that you've done. Is that right? That's right, right. yes. You've done a full biography of him. Uh, We did one with family correspondence. It's called Arthur Conan Doyle, Mm -hmm. A Life in Letters. Uh, It was published five years ago. Um, And it basically uses uh, roughly a thousand letters that he wrote to his mother and to other members of the family over a period of something like 54 years in his life. Mm-hmm. starting from when he went off to boarding school at the age of eight uh, until her, her death at the end of 1920. And we what we wanted to do, there, there's a lot of myself and my co-editor, Dan Stashauer again, in that, in that book, but we wanted to tell his life as much as in his own words as possible, and the letters just worked marvelously mm-hmm. in that in that way. And... Uh, the, I think the book was uh, the book was successful, at least in honors. Uh, it was a BBC Book of the Week uh-huh. in its British edition, and it won the uh, Mystery Writers of America's Edgar Award. Uh, oh, that's a very important here. award. Yes, sure. we were very very happy about that. <clears throat> what what of his personal life, his family life? Um, his family life, uh, growing up, was rocky. His father was a talented artist who had gone from London as a very young man to Edinburgh to work in the uh, in the part of the government there that basically designed buildings and great fountains. Uh, mm-hmm. the, pal- the fountain at Holyrood Palace in Edinburgh was designed by him and the like. But he developed a very serious drinking problem during this time, and uh, it became acute enough that his professional career ended when he was only 46, and it was a very difficult time financially for the family, uh, particularly since Conan Doyle was only one of a number of children. He was the uh, the first son and the second oldest, but he had uh, an older sister, 
a younger brother and about four more younger sisters uh, that live beyond infancy. And he very early on uh, acquired a, a, a deep respect for his mother who was better edu- educated than women tended to be in Victorian Britain at the time, uh, a, quite a Francophile, um, and uh, somebody very interested in family history and lineage, very hardworking, very thrifty, very determined that, this, her, that these children were going to all grow up properly, be educated, and go off and live good lives themselves. And he picked up a lot of this burden as he grew older um, to help support the family and help raise his youngest children. In fact, when he was uh, first a a doctor himself, he had his younger brother come Uh down and and live with him. Now, when does he marry and to whom? He married in 1885. He was still in his 20s. He married (laughs) the sister of a patient of his uh, Mm -hmm. that he had met. Uh, her name was uh, Lu- Louisa Hawkins, although she went by the nickname Tui. And they had uh, two children, a son, Kingsley, and a daughter, Mary. Um, she c- contracted tuberculosis, which was uh, a very common thing in those days. And uh, when it was, she was first diagnosed by the specialist with it, they gave her six months to live. He was a doctor himself, and by one means or another, he kept her alive for over 10 years before she finally did die in 1906. Mm -hmm. He remarried in 1907 and had three children by uh, his second wife, Jean Leckie, and uh, the youngest of which was another daughter named Jean, who was my great privilege to know in her late years and uh, to to assist in terms of uh, the U.S. rights. She uh, had gone into the Royal Air Force in 1938. Oh, she's the one who retires as a general. Indeed, right? she did. And when yeah. she re- she stayed in the Air Force, she worked <coughs> in the Air Force in intelligence work throughout uh-huh. the war, stayed in afterwards for 30 years and retired uh, as both the the feminine equivalent of of knighthood yeah. and had she's been a, an she's a dame she's a court. dame yes what's and the full name dame dame jean conan doyle dame general jean conan doyle well she, yeah i don't think they use it put the construct the quite that way but yes and uh oh they do well in this i've never heard her refer to herself I'm not sure I ever heard heard her refer to herself by her military rank, not even well, at the naval. Well, if you use the military rank, it comes before but, the Sarah Dame. Yeah. But she was also Lady Bromet in her uh-huh. in her marriage. She uh, <coughs> after she retired from the Air Force, uh-huh. she re, she married a retired Air Vice Marshal named didn't, Jeffrey didn't, Bromet. Didn't uh, Conan Doyle have one son who died young and whom he sought? Through spirit contact? Yes, his son Kingsley uh, was in the British Army during the World, World War One yeah. and died at the end of it. And, um, and that was part of his motivation for all the interest in spiritualism. I think it was, but he had already committed himself to this cause prior to Kingsley's uh-huh. death. What can you tell us about all that other vast work of the non-Sherlockian variety? Well, I think it's impossible not to like his foundation science fiction work, The yeah. Lost World. You mentioned that one earlier. About yeah. Professor Challenger. It is one of the mm-hmm. great English adventure stories. Um, his, I think, probably his finest short stories 
are not actually the Sherlock Holmes stories. No. What a, I will be in a lot of that's trouble. That's a sacrilegious thing to yes, say. Yes, I will be in a lot of trouble with, <laughs> with friends of mine. What are they? I, but I, I think they are his two volumes of uh, Brigadier Girard stories about the Napoleonic Wars. They are beautifully plotted and written. And they have a tremendous sense of humor in them. Uh, the the main character is uh, is a little bit like D'Artagnan and the Three oh. Musketeers. He's 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 a little braver and a little more dashing and gallant uh, than he is actually bright. So it's a very picaresque yeah. set of stories. Uh, and at times they are about the funny – also just perhaps about the funniest stories in the English language. Somehow as you talk about that, they remi- yeah. that reminds me a bit of Evil and War's novels about the war. Yes. The uh, – well, Evil and War's, of course, always have an they're ironic all, tone. And um, and they're also more bitter. They're more – They're more bitter. Yeah. Uh, the Brigadier Girard stories are not bitter. Uh, they're, they're sometimes they're sad because, <laughs> yeah. of course, France is losing. But they're not bitter, I and must, the uh, the yeah. uh, Brigadier Girard wouldn't know irony if you hit him on the head uh-huh. with a bar of it. I must get breathe. I've, I've never read those; barely know anything about them. They're great stories. I must get my hands on them, and we must pause right now uh, for a quick round of commercials. After that, a few more scenes from dramatizations of the home stories, and after the um, eleven thirty. Uh, news break, on to your calls. We'll open the lines right now. If some, anybody wants to get in line and doesn't mind waiting for 15 minutes, now's your opportunity. 312-591-7200. 312-591-7200. If you want to be in touch because you're far, far away uh, over the email, uh, do that by all means, whether you're on either coast. Well, if you're on the East Coast, you've got other business tonight. But whether on the West Coast or up in Canada, down in Mexico, or over on the Pacific Rim, uh, the email address, extension720 at wgnradio.com, extension720, one word, at wgnradio.com, or for phones, again, 312-591-7200, right back after this. Extension 720 with Milt Rosenberg from the Allstate Studios in Chicago on 720 WGN. He's, of course, one of the great... And we're directly back, uh, and we will go to more scenes. Um, One that I'm very interested in hearing again. This was uh, worked up by our producer, of course, though under my instruction, I said, be sure to get Ralph Richardson together with Sir John Gielgud uh, as Dr. Watson. And we've got a separate scene uh, from the Mystery of the Red-Headed League in which uh, Dr. Watson is played by Ralph Richardson. You told me privately that he's one of your favorite actors. Yes, he certainly is, and that and many other things. Yes, and the same is true for me. And here we are. The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, the original and immortal stories of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, dramatized anew with... Sir Ralph Richardson as Dr. Watson, and Sir John Gielgud in the role of Sherlock Holmes.
I suppose that the affair of the red-headed league was always one of my favorites among Sherlock Holmes's triumphs. When I was writing these memoirs of his adventures, that always amused and exasperated him so much, I set it among the earliest. Yet the adventure itself didn't occur until rather late in our relationship. And one day in the autumn, I went back to the dear old haunt in Baker Street for a visit. And there he was. And sitting with him was a very stout and florid-faced old gentleman with the fieriest red hair I'd ever seen in all my life. And that's all we have of it. But he enters undoubtedly, and then we hear Gilgood. And oh. it's a wonderful story. It's well, one, one of the, the great Sacco endings, wouldn't you say? Uh, it certainly is, although I think it also has one of the uh, few times in which a client is embarrassed when both Holmes and Watson burst out in laughter at hearing his pathetic story. So it's... Uh, it's 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 one of everybody's favorites, I think. And the short remind me, what, what's the pathetic story? Well, he um, he had seen an advertisement, yeah, um, asking for red-headed men uh, to Quite apply so. for something that would be uh, would put some money in their pockets. And he did so, and he found quite a line of red-headed men trying to get this opening. And he finally got in to see the interviewer. And was told that it was a bequest by a redheaded man in America uh, to, for the benefit of them. But they had to be sure that he was genuine because they had been fooled before by people, mm -hmm. as they said, with you know, putting cobbler's wax in their hair and so mm -hmm. forth or wigs. And um, they actually yanked on the man's hair uh, very painfully to make sure that it was genuine. And then they gave him the position and the position was to show up every day, and copy out the Encyclopedia Britannica. Yes. <laughs> which has got to be the the greatest make-work job in the world. I mean, so he does this, and he does it very faithfully and assiduously, day after day, week after week. <laughs> and he's gotten about five letters into the alphabet and has just compiled a huge handwritten copy of the Encyclopedia Britannica for no earthly purpose he can think of, and he comes back for the next day, and he simply finds a, car a cardboard placard on the door that says, the Red-Headed League is dissolved. And at that point, Holmes and Watson burst into laughter, and very quickly, the man's face turned just as red as his hair. Mm. <laughs> now, we're not going to give away what that, the, the secret to the story. No, right? make people go out yeah. and buy the go book. Go out and read The Red-Headed League, Absolutely. by all means. What are some of your other favorites? Um, I like The Speckled Band a great deal. Yeah. I'm very fond of the story from which my canonical investiture mm -hmm. in the, the Red-Headed, sorry, in the Baker Street Irregulars comes from The Adventure of the Three Garadebs. As far as the novels are concerned, um, I like The Hound of the Baskervilles best, I suppose, but I have a soft spot for the sign of four, which is uh, the great romance story for of Watson's with uh, their client Mary Morstan, mm -hmm. and I like the Valley of Fear a good deal, partly because Moriarty is lurking in the background, partly because it's uh, a story 
whose origins are are American and in, from Chicago again, as a matter of fact. Yes, we were, we were going to talk about Conan Doyle and his trips to Chicago. Well, he first visited Chicago in 1893 when he was on a speaking tour in the United States. By then, he was very celebrated as the author of the Sherlock Holmes stories as well as other things and uh, a quite a celebrity of the time and was in the hands of, a, of an impresario in the United States who worked out a, a very, very demanding lecture tour in the eastern half of the country over a period of about three and a half months, in, including one trip up to uh, Toronto in Canada. But he came back uh, to Chicago much later, twice, uh, in 1922 and 1923, as, uh, and as, as part of his spiritualist speaking tours of those years. Um, he felt he knew Chicago well. He met quite a lot of people and met many of the leading lights when he was here in 1893. And one of his stories, he puts Holmes in Chicago. Well, he, he, he does indeed. Uh, it is uh, an espionage story, spy yeah. story, uh, set... <coughs> on the eve of the First World War, and he has been talked out of retirement by his brother Mycroft Holmes, who sometimes was the British government, to uh, do an important counter-espionage work. He uh, assumes the identity of a rapidly anti-British Irishman, um, goes to the United States, manages to infiltrate some anti-British Irish secret societies in Buffalo and in Chicago, and through that channel goes back in England, manages to, to become part of a German spy ring as, in fact, a double agent. Um, it was a story that Conan Doyle wrote in published in 1917 while World War was still underway and one of the very few pieces of fiction that he wrote during that war. Mm -hmm. um, but there, Chicago keeps cropping up many times in, in the stories. Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, sometimes it's, it's he had the same idea of Chicago as many foreigners do. And one story is about the crooks of Chicago. Not totally inaccurate even then. Yeah, well, as I say, he had, he had first-hand experience. One Chicago. last clip coming up before we pause for the news and then on to the phones on 312-591-7200. A modern rendering of or and restructuring of Holmes and Watson. This is from the film in which Sherlock is played by Robert Downey Jr. and Watson by Jude Law. And here they're talking about uh, Sherlock's encounter with Irene Adler. Holmes, you're early. Fashionably. Miss Mary Morstan. Oh, my goodness. What a pleasure. For the life of me, I don't know why it's taken him so long to introduce us properly. Pleasure is mine. It really is quite a thrill to meet you, Mr. Holmes. I've heard so much about you. I have a pile of detective novels at home, Wilkie Collins, Poe. It's true. It can seem a little far-fetched, though, sometimes, making these grand assumptions out of such tiny details. That's not quite right, is it? In fact, the little details are by far the most important. Take Watson. I intend to. <laughs> See his walking stick, a rare African snake wood, hiding a blade, five tenths out of steel. 
A few were awarded to veterans of the Afghan war, so I can assume. He's a decorated soldier. Strong, brave, born to be a man of action. And? Neat, like all military men. Now, I check his pockets. Ah, a stub from a boxing match. Now, I can infer that he's a bit of a gambler. I'd keep an eye on that dowry if I would. Those days are behind me. Right behind you. It's cost us the rent more than once. Well, with all due respect, Mr. Holmes, you know John very well. What about a complete stranger? What can you tell about me? You? I don't think that's... I don't know that that's... Not a dinner. Perhaps some other time. I insist. You insist? You remember we discussed it. The lady insists. You're a governess. Well done. Yes, well done. Shall we... Waiter. Your student. It's a boy of eight. Charlie's seven, actually. Uh, uh, finished all for his age. He flicked in kitchen today. Is there ink on my face? There's nothing wrong with your face. There are two drops on your ear, in fact. India blue is nearly impossible to wash off. Anyway, a very impetuous act by the boy, but you're too experienced to react rashly, which is why the lady for whom you worked lent you that necklace. Oriental pearls, diamonds, a flawless ruby, hardly the gems of a governess. However, the jewels you are not wearing tell us rather more. Holmes, you were engaged. The ring is gone, but the lighter skin where it once sat suggests that you spent some time abroad wearing it proudly. That is, until you were informed of its true and rather modest worth, at which point you broke off the engagement and returned to England for better prospects. Doctor. Right on all counts, Mr. Holmes, apart from one. I didn't leave him. He died. That wasn't the the um, the scene I was introducing. It's another one of the scenes from the same picture. There he's reading the history of Mary Morstan. That's right. Uh, I'm glad to say that that particular scene does not appear in the. Uh, Sherlock Holmes stories, because since those are true historical accounts, <clears throat> had that scene happened, Dr. Watson would probably have broken off relations with Mr. Holmes, and we would uh -huh. never have had the rest of the stories. <laughs> Wonderful. Uh, we are about to pause for an update on the news. Now is the time to give us a call. If you want to raise a question, offer an enthusiastic comment, share a story, uh, anything at all pertaining to um, Arthur Conan Doyle, whether we're talking about the, the Holmes stories or, or about other detective fiction or about other uh, stories uh, by or the life of Arthur Conan Doyle. All, uh, our, all of those possibilities are fully acceptable. Get in there quickly. <clears throat> we need your calls right now at 312-591-7200. I call upon my good friends to get in there and give us some good commentary and or questions. It can be commentary rather than mere question, but we need you now, 312-591-7200. Extension 720 with Milt Rosenberg on 720 WGN. And we return to John Lellenberg and to our special personage of the evening, Arthur Conan Doyle, and to his special personage, uh, Sherlock Holmes, not to forget uh, the redoubtable Dr. Watson. 312-591-7200 is the number. Some lines are uh, uh, taken, some are still available. We look forward to your calls. Anything you want to ask or say with regard to the work of Arthur Conan Doyle, and if you're 
uh, at Baker Street a regular or aspire to be one? Anything you want to say <clears throat> or ask more particularly about the Holmes stories? Before we go to the phones uh, on 312-591-7200, you say that you had occasion to chat with Nigel Bruce's daughter. I did once, About Nigel yes. Bruce. Yes. Um, she was traveling with her husband in the United States mm-hmm. on aid of a, of a medical charity. And uh, some, some mutual, well, I guess it was Gene Conan Doyle who arranged for us to meet in Washington and to have dinner. And it was fun talking to her because she had grown up in Hollywood, born in Santa Barbara, uh-huh. actually, when her father was in the movie business and had grown up in Hollywood. And we were talking once about the fact that some Sherlockians are critical of his performance of Watson, that he's not the, the, the crisp, dynamic person they see in the stories. He's more of a of an amiable duffer and the like. And she said, well, you know, Papa wasn't acting. That's the way he was. Yeah. Yeah. And she was just absolutely charming. I think he was charming in the movies. Um, we go now to the phones. 312-591-7200. And John is our first caller. Good evening. You're on the air. Yeah, I'm calling from Grand Blank, Michigan, near Flint. I'm still trying to find a copy of William Baring Gold's annotated copy. I haven't been able to find that. I believe <clears throat> Jeremy Brett probably did the most skillful, accurate presentation of uh, Sherlock Holmes, although I wonder about his end. I understand he started believing he was Sherlock Holmes. But my question regarding William Raby, who ended up his career as a college media relations person up at the Mackinac Island at the big grand hotel up there. He had one of the world's largest collections of Sherlock Holmes memorabilia, first editions, first folios, Polish, Japanese, Russian. I understand before he died or after he died, his wife sold this to a Japanese industrialist for about $4.5 million. Can you confirm or tell me anything about that? Well, I'm afraid... I can neither confirm nor deny that. I don't. I don't know if that story is true or not. Mm-hmm. I, I knew Bill Raby, and I have never heard that story before. Um, I think a lot of his collection. My understanding is that a lot of his collections <laughs> with his son John Raby, who works in the uh, in the radio field out mm-hmm. in I think Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Some of it, I believe, is at the uh, the great Sherlock Holmes collections at the University of Minnesota libraries. Ah. But I share your admiration for Bill Raby, who was one of the most hilariously imaginative people that I have ever known. Do you know what the middle name of his oldest son was? Very close to what you do when you fill out federal papers is parentheses, N, M, N, parentheses. It stood for no middle name. And when he got to be 18 years old, he finally just shrugged it off as I stopped explaining it. But one of my favorite stories about Bill Raby when he started the stone clipping contest up there at Mackinac Island was he got a request from the people in Cleveland if they could hold the stone skipping contest at Cleveland. Well, that was about a year after the Cahoga River caught fire. And we turned them down when this was a meeting the Friday after Thanksgiving. We met at the press club in Detroit. And then we turned them down because we figured the river was so polluted the stone wouldn't sink. It would keep skipping. So, yeah. Very, I enjoy it, and I'm enjoying your program tonight. I really appreciate it. But would you make a comment on other than, um, well, Basil Rappone, I understand he actually did play the fiddle. He could play the violin in the movies that he made about Sherlock Holmes. Yes, I believe that's right. Well, thank you, gentlemen. Very interesting. (laughs) Thank you, sir. Nice contribution. 
uh, Detroit uh, branch of the Irregulars, is that still in existence? It is indeed the Amateur Mendicant Society. Ah, uh, okay. Uh, well, thank you very much, gentlemen. We thank you for the call. 312-591-7200. Uh, lines are available. I need some more good calls. Get in there with it quickly, whether you want to uh, give us more inside information about the real life of Sherlock Holmes or whether you've got questions that you want to raise. Now's the time to do so at 312-591-7200 or by email to extension 720 at wgnradio.com. Next up is Mark. Good evening, sir. You're on the air. Good evening, Milton. Uh, a question to your guest. Uh, Conan Doyle, uh, of course, he wrote a, a series of, um, they were carried in the, the Idler magazine, uh, which is one of, a couple of his friends, Jerome K. Jerome, uh, was the editor of that. And uh, it was called the Stark Monroe Letters. Yes. And I think they were later collected in a book called Round the Red Light or something like that. No, those are two different things. Stark Monroe Letters is a novel of pretty autobiographical in nature. That's what I wanted to ask, you know, because right. it was about a young doctor up in Scotland uh, who was struggling, you know, very, very much. Uh, it, how, how autobiographical is that? It's, it's quite autobiographical, uh, particularly the episodes when he first starts up in medical practice of his own were based very, very closely upon the very difficult times and, and the, hilar- fun, the very comical times that he went through in, uh, in South Sea. Um, the Red Lamp stories are all stories of medicine. Uh, some of them are somewhat autobiographical, but not entirely. Okay. But it, it was just, uh, what was interesting about the Stark Monroe letters, of course, they were being written to a, a fellow uh, med school student who was an American. Yes. Is there is there a basis for this? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you very much. You're we welcome. Thank you, thank sir. You. Glad to have heard from you. <clears throat> he is one of one could probably compile a list of quite a number of writing physicians. Uh, for example, Somerset Maugham mm-hmm. was trained as a physician. Yes. I think practiced for a while. Who else comes to mind? Well, uh, Chekhov, the great Russian writer, was a physician. I, I'm sure there are more than than are occurring to me right now because uh, certainly, I think many. Physicians are drawn to to uh, literature. Uh, certainly, many members of the Baker Street Irregulars are mm-hmm. physicians, uh-huh. and in fact, one of its uh, one, 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 probably the longest uh, an office of, of the BSI's leaders was a was a, was a physician, a surgeon actually, named Ju- uh, Julian Wolf. Mm-hmm. Uh, the stories are medical in nature. I mean, it, uh, Conan Doyle was a physician writing stories about a detective whose method was based upon another physician. The narrator is a physician. It would be hard for doctors not to be strongly drawn to this. True enough. Yes. Yeah. We're about to pause the last round of commercials and right back to the phones. 312 591 7200. Extension 720 with Milt Rosenberg on 720 WGN. And we'll go directly back to the phones. Uh, room available still on the uh, the phone line in front of me, or rather the phone board in front of me, 312-591-7200. And next up is Randy, who joins us at WGN Radio. Good evening, sir. Hello, Dr. Rosenberg. Excellent show, as always. Thank you. 
Okay, I have two questions. The first is on the origin of the of uh, Sherlock, the name Sherlock. I mean, it seems to be a perfect fit for Sherlock Holmes. I, mean, I don't think I've ever seen that name on anybody else ever in my lifetime. And then the second question is, I thought that uh, Peter Cushing was, was probably the most uh, accurate embodiment of Sherlock Holmes as I read him. But I'd like to know what your guess was. Um, what his thoughts are about that. I'm very fond of the of Peter Cushing as Holmes. I um I am thinking mainly of his movie version of The Hound of the Baskervilles. Right. Um he did the television series in England in the nineteen sixties quite a bit and I have not seen those uh and would very much like to, but I I don't think all of them uh have survived the uh, the time and frankly the BBC's uh, reprocessing the videotape, <laughs> but uh, I like Cushing a great deal. I, I think the major criticism of him by some is that he's not really tall enough to be Holmes, but it, where he works for me. Well, he had the aquiline nose. He did indeed. Or you can always do that with putty if necessary. Yeah, he. Well, he had, but it was him, and he had the mannerisms uh-huh. as well. Um, very, very good in the part, I think. The name Sherlock. Well, the name Sherlock is something that still eludes the public uh, where this came from. Uh, It was not his first thought for the name. There is a page of notes that he made when he was first thinking of writing A Study in Scarlet, the first tale. And on that page of notes, it is uh, Sherenford Holmes. And... To make one cringe even more, uh, Dr. Watson's name is given as Ormond Sacker. Uh, he thought better of these things, and he came up with uh, names that uh, worked instantly and have worked, worked very well to these days. But just where they came from I, is not very clear. Does the name Sherlock occur anyplace else? In recorded well, history? Oh, certainly, yes. It's 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 a uh, it's an Anglo-Saxon name. It uh, there is, I think, a very famous uh, religious philosopher in England ah. by by I think if I'm remembering correctly, Thomas Sherlock. Mm-hmm. You see the name a fair amount. It's more often, I think, a surname than a than a Christian name. Um, but exactly out of what. Conan Doyle plucked it. No one has ever known, and he has never. He never said. Some of the other names are quite. Some seem exactly right as well. He was good at names. Uh, Doctor Boriarty. Yes, indeed. Colonel Sebastian Moran. Yes, there. A lot of his villains have that M O R in it, which of course he was a Latin student, and Uh which he knew is Latin for death. Ah. And he knew that many of his readers were Latin students and had this planted subconsciously in in their minds, and so. Some of the chief villains have that M.O.R., uh, Moriarty, Moran, and, and a few others. So he has Mortius and Mortar. Yes. In mind. Yes. How interesting. He was well-educated. Yeah. Thank you, sir, for the call. Okay, thank you. Very glad to have heard from you. Um, a little bit more about you. We haven't, we've talked a great deal about uh, two people, Sherlock Holmes and about Arthur Conan Doyle. Um, how did you come to all of this? Well, I think, like... Most people of, of my generation and even earlier generations, I saw Sherlock Holmes first in a, in a dramatization. And in my case, it was the the first television series in 1954 uh-huh. when I was very young. And I was captivated by it. Uh, it starred Ronald Howard, Leslie Howard's son, mm-hmm. as Sherlock Holmes. 
And so I got the stories and read them, and uh, I fell into the practice of taking the 1,000-plus page book off the shelf once a year and going through it again like a threshing machine, Mm -hmm. putting it back on the shelf. Another year would pass, I would repeat it. And I did that through high school. When I was out in Los Angeles in college, um, I fell out of the habit for one reason or or the other, and it was not until I think I was actually in graduate school in uh, 1968 when I was at uh, the great Pickwick Bookshop on Hollywood Boulevard and I saw something new that one of the earlier callers mentioned, and that was the huge two-volume annotated Sherlock Holmes by William S. Baring Gould. And it was the first time I realized that for decades there had been this movement called the Baker Street Irregulars that was conducting mock scholarship based on the stories that this huge literature existed, which treated Holmes and Watson as historical personalities, the cases as true, happily acknowledged all the contradictions and inconsistencies and chronological problems with that, and devoted themselves to puzzling that out and publishing the results. And I thought... I could use a hobby, and this one sounds uh-huh. perfect for me, and I've never looked back. Is there anything equivalent to the Baker Street Irregulars for another writer? There are certainly society, clubs and societies for other writers. I think that a lot of the—I use the word societies for some of them because I think yeah. they're very academic in nature, like the Jane Austen Society, G.K. Chesterton Society. They don't do the same—they're they're focused on the authors. We're focused on the, on the characters in the fiction. Because you could very well have a similar organization structured around— uh, the real Nero Wolf and the real Archie Goodwin. Well, there is one, as a matter of fact, uh, folk, uh, centered mainly in New York called the Wolf Pack. And, uh-huh. and there is so much of Rick Stout's Nero Wolf story, so many books that there's exactly. great fields to plow. And they, you could do the same. They plow them, mm-hmm. and, and we, we overlap to some degree because of uh, Rick Stout having been a Baker Street regular yeah. himself and drawing on on the canon for some of I'm them. quite fond of... Uh, of the Nero Wolf stuff, as I am of Sherlock Holmes, obviously. Uh, here's an email. How did you get across... Uh, I'm sorry. How did you get access to Conan Doyle's Arctic Diary, and how did you come to do the annotations? Well, I have been working with the family for many years, starting with Dame Jean Conan Doyle. Um, she died in 1997. Um, the Conan Doyle estate is now a small number of members of the of the family, none of them are direct air, uh, descendants of Arthur Conan Doyle. None of his children had children, but they are collateral uh, relatives on, on the father's side or the mother's mm-hmm. side. And the family still owned this diary. Um, there was a great auction of Conan Doyle papers that had long been buried in the in vaults of a solicitor's office at Christie's in London in 2004, and and the diary was put up for auction, but it was one of the things I really did not Mm -hmm. want to part with because it's so special and such a beautiful piece of manuscript. So they put a very high reserve upon it, and they still own it today. And I have been working with them uh, on some of the materials, uh, both that they own or that that libraries own today, and bringing bringing additions of these out. the Arctic Diary is the one item that, that that 
thrills and pleases me most to work with because it's such a I could see great that. adventure. I could see it. It's a great manuscript. Um, here's another email from an old friend in Rochester, New York, who says, here's another novelist trained as a physician, A.J. Cronin. I've read his novel entitled The Citadel. Indeed, so did I many years ago. And I made, it was a film uh, many years ago as well. British made with the British actor Robert Donat as yes. the doctor in question. Yes. Uh, and uh, I want to quickly get to one other email of it in front of me. This is from another frequent listener down in Nashville, Tennessee, Mark, who says, I've always assumed Sherlock was a pun on sure lock, suggesting a lightness of logical thinking and inexorability. Well, I don't know that I would necessarily agree with that, but I can tell you that certainly people who have written parodies of Sherlock Holmes have used na- names like that. Uh, the, uh, the, the, the permutations to his name by parodists is almost beyond counting. Um, some of them are very clever. Uh, I think maybe my favorite is a series of stories written in the early 1890s when Conan Doyle was still writing the Sherlock Holmes stories. These were in Punch and were about picklock holes. Oh, really? Yes. <laughs> who, who, to your mind, is the greatest uh, pasticher of Sherlock Holmes? In other words, Sherlock Holmes stories and or novels written by somebody else. Oh, gosh. That's very hard to say what is, you know, who is the best or who, who is my favorite. There's certainly some that I'm very fond of. Um, one of them is Nicholas Meyer's The 7% uh, yeah. Solution. Uh, another, Which we talked about with Nicholas Meyer years ago uh, when he first wrote it. And there was a, certainly a series that I liked a lot in um, that were written in the, in the late 1930s and the early 1940s by a British writer mainly of supernatural tales named H.F. Uh, Hurd. And these were about Mr. Uh, Mr. Mycroft, which was his brother's name. Mycroft Holmes. This is Sherlock Holmes in disguise. And he's a beekeeper in Sussex in his old age and becomes involved in, the, in these mysteries, the first of which was called A Taste for Honey. And they're absolutely charmingly uh, told. And it's it's... A twinkle in his eye, this name that he goes by. And you never see Sherlock Holmes in the books, but it's, he makes it clear who he really is. And at one time in the 1950s, a American television adaptation of, Mike, of A Taste for Honey was made with Boris Karloff in the role, and I have never seen it, and I would gladly kill to. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank uh, you our for guest me. Uh, has been John Lellenberg, the book. In hand is Dangerous Work, Diary of an Arctic, notice the inner sea, of the Arctic, of an Arctic adventure uh, by Arthur Conan Doyle. We'll be back again tomorrow night at 10 uh, with a full two-hour program with uh, Daniel Gordis, who is a leading Israeli journalist and scholar, and he's got a very interesting book about uh, the current life of Israel and its uh, good rather than uh, insecure position in the Middle East. So he argues, and we'll hear much more about that tomorrow night at 10. Until then, thanks to all for listening, and a most cordial good night to all.